morning, Element Church. I want to welcome you uh, to Element. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here. And I also want to welcome you to our very final week in our study through the book of Judges. And we've titled this, say, uh, this uh, series, Broken Saviors, as we've just looked at um, all of these judges and leaders who stepped up to lead the nation of Israel. But as we get to see them and their lives and their leadership more, realize that they're nothing more than just broken saviors. If you'd like to follow along with us this morning, uh, you can use this QR code, or if you already have the Bible app on your phone, then you can just open up the Bible app, go to the main menu, click events, and your phone already knows that you're at Element Church. And so you can follow along with us this morning. All the scriptures that we're going to read and cover this morning are there for you, as well as links to many of the things that Christy just talked about, like our connection card, our prayer request form. If you'd like to RSVP um, for our Seder dinner, then you can do it through that as well. If you have kids who are in one of our kids' ministry rooms, we have a weekly uh, Parent Connection newsletter uh, that you can download that will detail what your kids are learning right now and how you can incorporate those lessons at home with some great discussion questions and activities that you can do with your kids during the week. Now, today we are going to cover the last five chapters in the book of Judges. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, great. We're not getting out of here till one o'clock. I promise you, we are getting out on time and you're actually gonna be thankful that we're covering five chapters today because it is going to force us to move very, very quickly. And you're gonna appreciate that. In the course of this study, as we've been going through the book of Judges, if you found any of the stories that we've covered disturbing, or confusing or troubling in any way, uh, today will be much worse. Now we are so excited because for almost two years since COVID started, um, we were not able to fully open our children's ministry up. I mean, we got kicked out of the school when it first happened. And then when they let us back in, we couldn't use the classrooms. And then we, we had to go through this whole process of opening our children's ministry back up and are so excited that all of our rooms are now open. I will not be unnecessarily crude or gruesome uh, today. However, some of the stories we are covering today are a little difficult. So today would be a great day to have your kids in kids ministry where they have an environment where they can learn about God and Jesus in a safe, age-appropriate way that will set the foundation for a life of loving and serving and worshiping the Lord. But despite these difficult stories that we're going to summarize today that are some of not only the most bothersome stories in the book of Judges, but in the whole Bible, there is a reason that these stories were left in the Bible. Because these stories paint a picture for us of a life and a community that has abandoned God and has decided that they would be their own gods in their own lives and community. And so to begin this morning, I am first going to pull up Judges chapter two, verse 11. And it starts this way. 
And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Baals is an ancient uh, Palestinian word uh, that just means gods. And so they, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served and worshiped other gods. Now, if you have been a part of this series with us, this is a phrase we have seen over and over and over and over again. It's repeated throughout the entire book and it's used as a signaling device. Because what this phrase does is it lets us know that we have restarted the cycle that we have seen played out over and over in the entire book. That every cycle begins with the people rebelling against God. And the way the book of Judges describes it is that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So God gets angry over their idolatrous ways and their rebellion. And what he does is he removes his hand of protection over the Israelites and allows the foreign armies and their foreign neighbors to come in, march in and create problems, fight wars against them, oppress them. They don't like the consequences of this. And so they cry out to God and they ask for his help. And sometimes they even repent for being idolatrous. And so God brings salvation and deliverance through a judge. That's why we call the book Judges, but not like a modern judge who wears a robe and uh, oversees court proceedings. These judges were more like deliverers. They were military leaders who would come and free the Israelites and push back those who are oppressing them. And then we'd get a period of peace. Things would be all good in the nation of Israel. And then the judge would die and we'd start the cycle all over again because the people would go back to their idolatrous ways. They would do again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so we have seen this cycle on repeat over and over and over and over through the course of our study in the book of Judges. But now we're into chapter 17 as we go to cover the final five chapters today. And we get this interesting change because we're starting another cycle, but it's a different kind of cycle. And here's how it's introduced. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is a key phrase that we cannot overlook or ignore. Because this phrase becomes the new repeated phrase. This becomes the phrase that the writer of Judges uses over and over and over in the final five chapters. In many ways, this is sort of like the secret code to unlocking the best way to understand what's happening in these final five chapters. How could people who claim to believe in God, who know God, who were given all of his instructions for how to live life. How could people who claim to believe in God do such horrible and despicable things? And this is the answer. That not only were they doing what was evil in God's eyes, what they were doing for them in their own eyes seemed right. They had justified what they were doing because to them it seemed right. This is the greatest form of idolatry that exists. Now what we've seen in the book of Judges is that the Israelites, one of the ways that they rebel against God and, 
and, and go and serve other gods is they fall into traps of idolatry. They begin worshiping other gods as the one true God. But most of the time when we think of idolatry, we think of like little mini figurines or we think of a shrine that's set up on someone's mantle. And that certainly is idolatry. But the real idolatry that's a danger to us, not only to the people who lived back then, which was 3,000 years ago when this story took place, but even the idolatry that we're tempted with today is not to bow down and worship a figurine or some shrine that's set up on a mantle. Our greatest temptation is self-idolatry. The greatest danger for you and I today is what we may call the deification of self, that we make ourselves God in our own lives. And when we make ourselves God, then our desires, our preferences, our thoughts, our opinions, our standards, our morality, all of them become ultimate. And so what we're going to talk a lot about today is something that I've titled Christian idolatry. Now, initially you look at that and like, that's an oxymoron. Like that doesn't actually make sense. You can't, you can't have something that's both Christian and idolatrous. And if you thought that, you'd be right. But this is exactly what we see in the book of Judges and what we see in people's lives today. A form of idolatry that looks Christian, sounds Christian, kind of feels Christian, but at the end of the day is really just a form of idolatry. And so we're gonna look through these next five chapters from the lens of what happens when we take our Christian faith and we make it idolatrous. Well, we begin to worship other things or maybe even ourselves more than we worship God. And here's the first point I wanna make. Christian idolatry redefines God rather than submits to him. So now let's jump into the story. Let's jump into these final five chapters. And so we open the scene in chapter 17 with a guy named Micah. Micah's a great guy because he steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother. It's pretty much all she owns. He steals 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother, and she is distraught. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, we see Micah return it. So in chapter three, after realizing how distraught his mother was, it says, and he, that's Micah, restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So she has this really interesting response, which gives us a picture of what the entire nation of Israel was doing at the time. So she gets back this silver. She's so happy that she says, my response is I'm going to build a carved or graven image out of part of this silver to worship the Lord. And here's why I call this Christian idolatry. Because she wasn't doing it to a pagan God or some God she had invented. 
She was doing it to Yahweh. So whenever you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that represents God's name that he gave to Moses a long time before this. So she says, I am going to make this image of Yahweh, of the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, the God of my people. So it looked like it was Christian. It looked like it was good and right, despite the fact that this breaks one of the Ten Commandments, the second commandment. God said, don't make any images of me. And here's why. Because when you make your own image of God, you magnify the aspects of God you like while concealing the parts of God that you don't. Now, some of you may go, yeah, not relevant to me. I'm not interested in making any silver images of God. As a matter of fact, I don't even own silver. Where would I get silver? I don't, I, this is not a temptation for me. And, and maybe making an actual figurine is not a temptation for you. But what is a temptation for all of us is not to recreate God physically, but to recreate God in our minds. We do it when we like to emphasize and focus on how much God forgives sin while ignoring his punishment of sin. We like to highlight his grace and ignore his judgment. Or maybe for you, you like to focus on his righteousness, but you ignore his compassion. When you create your own image of God, you cease to actually worship God. Because when you worship a God that you created, that's a figure of your imagination, that's a distortion of who God has revealed himself to actually be, we're not worshiping God, we're actually just worshiping a version of ourselves. We're rejecting God as he is, as he's revealed himself to be. And instead we're making a choice for ourselves. And hand in hand with the rejection of God and a recreation of a new image of God, the God that we want to exist, also comes a redefinition of morality. Now here's how you might know if you have been recreating God into your own image. Have you ever said things like, well, well, my Jesus is like this. Or I could not believe in a God who did this. Or I couldn't believe in a God who would say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think God likes this. See, when we say those kinds of things, we are recreating God into an image that we want him to be rather than who he really is. And the moment we begin worshiping the God of our imagination, we cease worshiping the God of the Bible. And so, Christian idolatry redefines God rather than submits to him. We want to make our own version of God that suits our preferences. Point number two, Christian idolatry uses God rather than worships him. So here's what Micah does next. 
So he returns this money to his mom. His mom is so happy. She takes part of the silver. She uses it to create this image of God that she likes. And strangely enough, she gives the rest of it back to Micah. Hey, listen, I know we've got some preteens and teens in here. That doesn't work in the real world. If you steal money from your parents and then think you can give it back and they'll be so happy, they'll give you the money back. It's not happening. So just so you know, that doesn't actually work. But she gives this money back to Micah because he's such a good little boy because he returned the money that he stole. So he, she gives this money to Micah and here's what he does. He not only takes this little silver statue that they had created to represent the God they wanted to worship, Micah builds an entire shrine in his house. He collects all these artifacts. He creates his own version of God and a place that he can worship how he wants to worship. But there's a problem because in Israelite tradition, you can't really worship if you don't have a priest. So here's what we see in the remainder of the story. Micah finds this traveling Levite. Now, uh, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but the nation of Israel was divided up into 13 tribes. And one of the tribes was a group called the Levites. And from the Levites, that's where the priests came. So he finds this Levite out wandering around. He's like, hey, you're a Levite? Hey, I want you to come be my priest. And the Levite's kind of unsure. And he's like, I got tons of silver. I will pay you a lot of money if you will come be my priest and, and lead worship at this shrine that I built. And the Levi's like, well, if you're paying that much, okay. And so he agrees to do this. He agrees to be Micah's personal priest to lead worship at Micah's personal shrine. And then here's what Micah says once all of his plan has come together. It says, then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. See, Christian idolatry uses God rather than worships him. The greatest substitu substitute for true faith in God is religion. Religion is founded upon two things. Number one, God exists to serve you. And number two, if you can do the quote, right things, then God is in your debt. Micah thought that if he did just the right things, God would be obligated to bless him. Now that he's got a Levite priest, he thinks everything that he has created has now been legitimized. And now God is obligated to do whatever Micah wants. See, religion asks things like, how can I get God to bless my business? How can I get God to give me a great family? How can I get God to prevent or take away difficult circumstances? Religion tries to control God, but true faith surrenders control to God. Religion seeks access to God, but true faith gives God access to your heart. But see, when we start falling into this practice of Christian idolatry, when we start taking the worship of ourself, 
when we start making ourselves God and we start just trying to attach some Christian ideas or Christian language to it, what we're really doing is we're trying to force God to serve us. We begin using God rather than worshiping him. Here's our third point. Christian idolatry is driven by fear rather than faith. So I mentioned the Levite tribe earlier. So I wanna do a little explanation. This might help you too. If you're reading the Old Testament, you hear about all these different groups of people and you're trying to figure out who's good, who's bad, who belongs where. Long time before the judges, the time of the judges, God comes to a, name, a man named Abram, who we know better as Abraham. Abraham was old. His wife was old. And they had no children. And the problem was that even when they were in their prime, they couldn't have kids. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to do something powerful and special in you and through you. One day, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. One day, I'm going to give your descendants their own land to call home. It'll be my promised land to them. And one day, I am going to bless you and your descendants so that I can bless every family on earth. So Abraham, I'm not just going to bless you. I'm not just giving blessings to you. I'm going to funnel blessings through you. And by the miracle and work and grace of God, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, have a son named Isaac. And God repeats this promise to Isaac. I'm going to give you all of these descendants. I'm going to funnel blessings through you and I'm gonna give your people a land to call their own. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob who also has the name Israel. This is where we get the term Israelites from. And God once again repeats his promise to Israel. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the shore. I'm gonna funnel blessings through you to every nation and every family on earth. And I'm gonna give you a land to call your own. Well, Israel has 12 sons. And initially this, this makes up the original 12 tribes of Israel. And what happens is when they actually go into the promised land, which is happening during the time of the judges, as they start taking possession of the land, they start giving out land allotments to each tribe. Now it's a lot more than 12 people. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at this point, because we, we're gonna go uh, almost 500 years down the line till we get to judges but they each start getting allotted certain pieces of land. Now what happens is the Levites who come from Levi, they actually don't get land. They get a couple cities and instead their primary responsibility as Levites is to serve as priests in the tabernacle and temple. Now because they don't have their own land, they can't grow crops and they can't raise livestock. So when the Israelites come to the tabernacle or the temple, to worship. And when they bring some of the produce from their fields and their livestock and they give it over at the temple, that's what takes care of and provides for the Levites because they don't have land, so they can't have their own farms and ranches. But the system of worship, when people bring things to the temple, that's what cares for the Levites. So the Levites don't get their own land. And so Joseph, 
one of the younger sons of Israel, actually uh, his tribe becomes two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so, his, so now we have 12 tribes who have land and one tribe who serves as priests. So that's just a little background. Maybe that'll help make sense of things when you're reading the Old Testament. But when we get to chapter 18, what we find is that the tribe of Dan, they have not gotten a land allotment yet. They don't have a place to call their own yet because they're still sort of taking possession of this land. And so the, so the tribe of Dan, they send out some men to go scout out new areas, go find us a good place to live. And as these men are traveling around, they come to Micah's home. And when they get to Micah's home, they see this incredible shrine that he's created. And they see that he has his own private Levite priest just there to serve him. And they're like, this is incredible. We want this. We don't want to have to go to the main tabernacle or temple to worship. We just want to be able to worship at home. So they steal all of Micah's artifacts and figurines and and steal his entire shrine. And then they bribe this Levite priest to come with them. And they're like, hey, wouldn't you rather serve as a priest to all of us than just one guy? Way more money, way more fame. Come with us. And as we've seen, this Levite can pretty much be bought. So he's like, sounds good to me. So they take the shrine and they take the priest and they're heading out of town. Micah gets word. He's irate. So he chases after them. And when he catches up to these these people, he starts screaming and hollering and making all this commotion. He's like, you can't do this. And they look at him and they're like, what is your problem? And then here's what Micah says. And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter? What have I left? You see, when you shrink God down to a size that you can control, you'll always live in fear of losing him. Because when you create God in your own image, when you create a God who is a figment of your imagination, then he exists to serve you and make your life comfortable and easy and enjoyable. But every difficult circumstance is a threat because if this God you created exists to serve you, what happens when life goes bad? What happens when someone you love gets cancer? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when the future you created for yourself falls apart? What happens when your spouse leaves? See, when you create a God who exists to serve you, when those things happen, then there's only two realities. Either your God lied to you or your God doesn't even exist. And so you see people who create God in their own image and then become angry because this God didn't keep up their end of the deal. When you create God in your own image, you live in constant fear of losing him and losing what blessings you think he owes you. But when you surrender to the true God, you quit worrying about losing him because you know he'll never lose you. 
because the true God never promised an easy life. Never promised one that was cancer-free and difficulty-free. The true God never promised that you wouldn't endure suffering and challenging circumstances, but the true God did promise that no matter what happens in your life, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't promise that everything will feel good, but he does promise that for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that he will work together all things for good. And that challenging circumstances become an opportunity to grow in your character. But in Christian idolatry, we're driven by fear rather than faith because we've created this, quote, Christian God who exists to serve us rather than us serve him. And here's the final one. Christian idolatry ignores evil means because they justify an end that seems right. You've heard the phrase, right? The end justifies the means. In Christian idolatry, we begin to justify evil actions because of an end that seems right to us. Remember, in the story of Judges, we get this phrase over and over that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we get this shift where all of a sudden they start doing what seems right to themselves. And so we close the book of Judges with what is probably the darkest set of events in the history of the Israelite people. Many thousands of people are killed and all of the violence and atrocity is committed by Israelites against Israelites, their own people. It's the ultimate picture of what happens when you recreate God in your own image rather than submit to him as created beings made in his image. It's a case study into what happens when Christian idolatry is in full effect. And it paints a picture of a life for which the end justifies the means. Means that are evil in God's sight, but justified because the end is right in our eyes. So let me summarize the last three chapters. And they're dark. The scene opens with a Levite. A Levite and his concubine. A concubine is in short, a male order bride. It's a woman you pay for to serve you and please you. So this Levite, this guy is supposed to be of the priestly class. He should be setting the example. He and his concubine are having troubles. His concubine is unfaithful to him and she runs home to her father's house. So the Levite goes to get her, um, spends some, a few days at his father-in-law's house and eventually convinces his father-in-law and his uh, essentially male order bride to go home with him. But they get a late start, so they can't make it home before it gets dark, before nighttime falls. And so this Levite and his concubine and the entourage that they had traveling with them, they realize the sun is going down and they need to find a place to stay. And so the Levite's like, hey, there's a town right there, let's stay there. But one of his entourage is like, no, 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 we cannot stay there. That's a foreign city. We wouldn't be safe there. Let's travel just a little further till we can get to an Israelite city, our own people. 
so the Levite agrees, so they go to uh, what, what is actually a city within the tribe of Benjamin. It's a Benjamite city, but within the, one of the tribes of Israel. So they go to the city square because there was a practice in the Israelite community back then of hospitality. If you saw someone of your own kindred, your own people who is in need, you would offer to help them. So they go to the city square at night waiting for a fellow Israelite to come and offer them a place to stay. But it gets later and later and later and later and no one offers and everyone starts going home. And then at the last moment, this old man comes and he says, what are you guys doing? And they're like, well, we, no one offered us a place to stay, so I think we're just going to sleep here in the, the city square. And the old man is like, absolutely not. You're going to come home with me. And he says this interesting phrase, whatever you do, do not stay out here. Do not stay in the city square. Well, that's odd because this should be a safe place. But nonetheless, they take the hospitality of the old man and they go home. And that night, that night, a mob arrives outside of this old man's home, demanding that this old man turn over his travelers to the mob because they want to have their way with them. The old man tries to negotiate, tries to appease them uh, because as, as the host, he is now responsible for their well-being and safety. But eventually, the mob is not open to negotiation, and so the Levite sends his concubine out. And all night, she's abused. The next morning, the Levite comes outside, and his wife is laying there on the front porch, and he just steps over her because he's ready to go home. He calls out to her, hey, come on, let's go. It's time to go home. And she doesn't respond. Uh, because she's dead. So he loads her up on his mule and takes her home. And what he does next is hard to fathom, but he cuts her up into 12 pieces and he sends one piece along with a note to the other 12 tribes in Israel so that they know what took place that night. You see, to him, the means were justified by the end. He thought what he had done was justified. He thought that sending his wife out to be abused so that he could be safe, he thought he, he could justify it. He thought denying her the opportunity at a respectable and proper burial was justified because he needed to send a message to everyone else. So, as you can imagine, people were infuriated. The whole nation was angry. So they gathered together because they wanted to see justice served. As a matter of fact, 400,000 soldiers gathered together. They meet with this Levite who tells them the story of what happened. Now, it's convenient because he leaves the part out where he sends his wife out so that she can be abused and he doesn't have to. He tailors the story to make himself look good, but he describes what took place that night in the city and everyone is angry. And so they march to the city and they demand the city leaders hand over the guilty parties and the city leaders refuse. So they decide they're gonna fight them. If they won't hand them over, then we'll get justice ourselves. 
So a battle ensues and it lasts for several days. Tens of thousands of individuals are killed on both sides of the battle. But eventually, the nation's army is victorious. And in their anger and in their desire for justice, they don't just defeat the army. They march into every Benjamite city and they kill every living thing. Not just the men, not just the soldiers. Every man, every woman, every child, every animal. All of them. Because they thought the end justified the means. They were after justice for this abused and murdered women. And in response, they murdered tens of thousands of women and children and men. Because they thought the end that seemed right to them justified these evil means. 600 Benjamite soldiers escape. They go off into hiding. So all the other tribes get together and they make a vow not one of them will ever allow their daughter to marry one of these 600 Benjamite soldiers. Time goes by and tempers begin to cool. And all of a sudden they realize that because of the vow they had made and their own murderous ways, that the entire tribe of Benjamin was gonna be wiped off the map. And they started to be regretful. Like maybe they had overreacted. And then what's interesting is in Judges 21, they blame God. And they said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? God, how could you do this? How could you allow this to happen? They blamed God. And so they, not God, they devise a plan. How are they gonna keep the Benjamite tribe from disappearing? So they start looking around and they're like, hey, did anyone not show up to this little group meeting? And they realize there's one camp that didn't show up. So they send a few thousand soldiers and they kill everyone in the camp. This is their own people. They kill everyone in their camp except for any unmarried woman they can find so that they can give this unmarried woman to one of the Benjamite soldiers. So they kill everyone in the camp and there are 400 unmarried women left. Well, they're still 200 short because there were 600 soldiers. So then they come up with another plan on their own. And they tell these remaining 200 soldiers, hey, there's a town not far from here our own people, mind you. They have this special tradition at harvest time. They throw this huge party and festival. The men go over here and do their little activities for the festival. The women will go over here and do their activities for the festival. And while the men are preoccupied, you 200 who don't have a wife yet, go in and kidnap someone to be your wife. And when this town comes and complains to us, we'll tell them it's okay because you didn't break your vow. You didn't actually give your daughters in marriage. They were stolen, so you're okay. You didn't break your promise. You see, to them, the end justified the means. The end that just seemed right to them 
they use to justify these means. And so in their anger, righteous anger, over the abuse and murder of a one, one woman, they murder tens of thousands of women and kidnap hundreds. This is how the book of Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the closing to the book. To the darkest and most embarrassing period of Israelite history. It's hard to us, for us to connect to these stories sometimes because they're so foreign in so many ways. And while their methods are certainly different, the human heart has not changed in 3,000 years. Because we're still tempted to create our own God that we want to worship, who will, who will give us permission to do what sounds and feels right to us. So how do you know if you're justifying the means because of an end that seems right to you? Well, you may say things like this. Well, God understands my heart. See, when we say things like that, we're saying, God will ignore my actions because he knows my intentions. And since my intentions are good, you can ignore my actions. Or we say things like, God, I know you said, but. But I have my own higher standard of what's good or right or appropriate. So I know what you said, but... We say things like this, well, when X, Y, and Z changes, then I'll, well, when I make more money, well, when I have more free time, well, when I'm not in this season of life, well, when I get older, well, when, when this changes, then I'll, then I'll obey you, God, then I'll follow you. We say things like, this is just a season, it won't be permanent. It's just a difficult season of life. You know, the kids are young. They got all these sports and activities. I just am in a difficult season of my career right now. It's just a season. It's not permanent. As though, as long as it won't be like this forever, then it makes what we're doing now okay. Or we say things like, surely God wouldn't. Surely God couldn't. Surely God didn't we say those kinds of things, we are trying to justify. Now, our, our ways, our means, don't compare at the same level of evil and wickedness as the stories we read about today, but idolatry is idolatry. When you worship anything other than the one true God, you can't call it Christian. So this is how the book of Judges ends. But there's one other phrase that I think is interesting that we've seen repeated. In those days, there was no king in Israel. When the people had collectively decided to do what they thought was right, when they decided that the end justified the means, when no thought was given to what God considered evil, what Israel needed was someone to stand up and say something. They needed a leader with the power to veto their plans and confront their idolatrous thinking. But as the writer of this story reminds us once again, Israel had no king. 
What they needed, they did not have. What they did have, which was a bunch of broken saviors who could not lead them to true peace, what they did have, they did not need. God's people needed a true leader, a true ruler, an everlasting king. This period in Israel's history, the period of the judges, is dark and depressing. It's full of evil, wickedness, and self-destruction. All because of their, quote, Christian idolatry. Now, of course, they wouldn't have used that term Christian. Jesus hadn't come yet, but we can use it today. But there is a story that shines a light in the midst of all this darkness. The next book of the Bible is the story of Ruth. You may not know this, but Ruth's story happens during the time of the judges. As a matter of fact, chronologically, Ruth's story happens right about chapter 17. Ruth was a non-Israelite widow. Being a non-Israelite widow in Israel during this timeline, you can imagine, was not good. Israel treated their own women despicably, so you can imagine what her future looked like as a non-Israelite widow. But in the midst of all of Israel's idolatry and sin, God was faithful and was not going to give up on his redemptive plan for the people he created in his image. That would be all of us. Ruth found love again in a man named Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth and promised to take care of her and to take care of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, who was also a widow. Ruth had a son and the women of the village came together to celebrate God's faithfulness and the blessing that he had given to Ruth and to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And here's what we read at the end of Ruth's story. And the women of the neighborhood came, they gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. Now it was actually born to Ruth, but this is a celebration for God's care and faithfulness to both Ruth and Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is King David. This is that same David and Goliath. This is the same David who the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. This is the same David who wrote the majority of the book of Psalms. In the midst of darkness, there was this light that God was not done. He was still going to bring about his redemptive plan because Obed had a son named Jesse. Jesse had a son named David. And David had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son whose name was Jesus. Because it was through Abraham and his descendants that one day God would send a blessing to bless the world. And his name was Jesus. And he is the only one worthy of our true worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. It can be really difficult sometimes to read about these horrific stories of what took place. But the reality is these are stories that remind us of what happens when we fail to allow you to be God in our lives and in our communities. 
when we replace true worship for self-worship. When we allow what seems right in our eyes to supersede whatever you may call evil. So God, would you help us to be honest with ourselves this morning? To acknowledge the place in our own lives where maybe maybe we haven't surrendered control to you. We're still trying to be our own God. And Lord, would you help us to release that control over to you? To worship you as the only one who's truly worthy of our worship. That we would worship you for who you are as you revealed yourself to be. Not as we would like to create you in our imagination. So God, would you do a work in our hearts and our lives this morning as we come to worship you in spirit and in truth.